Thank you. What a great song. Uh, it is so good to be with you this morning. Um, I arrived on Sunday afternoon. I've never been to this camp meeting before, and as I've uh, begun to listen to people's stories of uh, year after year, generation after generation, it's just exciting to see that and see that uh, happening here. And uh, uh, I appreciate the invitation by Linda and the mission team. Um, my wife, Nancy, wasn't able to be with me. Our son, uh, youngest son, Seth, is home from Bible college for the summer and just needed to be there and be uh, helping him as he gets back and forth to work for the summer. So uh, uh, we live in northwestern Pennsylvania, and uh, if you're familiar with uh, Interstate 80, runs out across uh, Pennsylvania there, and we're about an hour in from the Ohio border. Uh, Claren University uh, is not too far from us, and uh, my, uh, uh, I, I do want to just thank the camp. Um, uh, you have such a great heritage of supporting missions, uh, OMS, WGM, others. And uh, I know there's a, a lot of missionaries that have come before me here at Camp Syker. And uh, I hear uh, names clear back to uh, uh, the Ernie's, Eugene Ernie, and many others that go way back. So thank you uh, so very much uh, for your uh, support of missions. Uh, my wife and I were accepted to serve with OMS uh, uh, in 1991, uh, about 28 years ago, and I am going to share just a little bit uh, of my own testimony of how I became involved or how we became involved with missions. Uh, I probably want to try to cover too much this morning, but I'm going to try to share a little bit on that to introduce my family, uh, and uh, I want to then share a little bit about OMS, and then I want to share... Uh, some thoughts on setting captives free, and, and boy, if you got to hear uh, the message just before me, uh, it seemed like it just ties right in. Um, I had the privilege of being raised in a Christian home. Uh, I, I listened to Rebecca's testimony yesterday, and we were talking a little bit beforehand, and she said, uh, I just kind of have a boring testimony. I was raised in a Christian home and uh, you know, knew the Lord most of my life, and, and really that's kind of my testimony. I, I remember years back at a youth retreat when I was just a young man saying, oh, if I had a testimony like that, you know, the guy had been in drugs and all this stuff, and it's like, wow, what a great testimony. And then it's like, you know what, it's also a great testimony of just being raised in a Christian family and serving him. And uh, so I, I, I had parents that loved the Lord, loved Jesus, uh, taught us about him. And so from an early age, I knew about Jesus and knew all uh, believed him, but uh, when I was in ninth grade, I went forward at an evangelistic seminar uh, conference and accepted the Lord and served the Lord through my high school years, but probably could have been a better testimony, but uh, served the Lord. Uh, graduated from college and started working in Oil City, Pennsylvania. That's kind of the, the uh, home of oil, if you ever heard Drake Well and oil. Uh, that's uh, where I started working for a, uh, a mid-sized bank there in their uh, data processing department. Uh, but during that first couple years working at the bank, I got involved with a young people's fellowship group in the, uh, in the town uh, and uh, just uh, really began to grow in my relationship with the Lord. And it was during that time I really just sold out to Jesus. Um, he began to just give me opportunities. I began teaching the high school Sunday school class and, and uh, became the youth director for our, our, our church and uh, just many things. I, I end up, uh, and I won't even go into the story because God just uh, worked it out in an amazing way. Met my wife uh, to be there. Uh, some of our first uh, dates were to a mission conference at our church. Uh, she had never heard a missionary speak at the church she attended. And uh, we had a mission conference every year, missionaries coming in for a whole week. Uh, we don't have too many week conferences anymore. Uh, but uh, so, uh, you know, we started attending mission conferences. And, and uh, before we got married, in fact, as I was getting ready to propose, I said, here's the kind of the deal. I don't think God's going to have me working in banking all my life. I said he's going to call us into um, you know, probably some type of full-time ministry. It could be pastoral ministry. It could be missions. Uh, and I just basically said, hey, are you willing to go uh, if the Lord calls us to a foreign field or someplace. And she said, yeah. So uh, that was just kind of something that was important to me, uh, that she needed to be willing to say, you know, it's just not going to be a job here at the bank. And so uh, we've been, uh, uh, our first baby came along in 82 and then 84, and uh, we kept going to mission conferences and hearing, being challenged. Uh, in about the mid-80s, uh, we were at the last night of our mission conference at our church, 
And uh, the, the couple that was leading it, uh, they just basically had a mission challenge at the end, and they said, you know, we think there's somebody here who needs to come forward and give your heart and your life to mission service. Uh, and we always sat in the second pew. Uh, no matter how many kids we had, we always sat in the second pew. I'm sure some people thought, boy, uh, go to the back. But uh, that's where we always sat. And, and I looked over at my wife. I said, that's us. And so we went up that night, and they prayed over us. It was interesting because years later, I mean, I didn't realize at the time, but uh, the missionaries involved were Howard and Wilbur Jacobs, and they were the regional, northeast regional directors, and that's a position I ended up holding for many years uh, much many years later. So, uh, and, and that began kind of the journey to searching how do we become a missionary. And, uh, and uh, I, we're, we're country folks. We live out in the boonies, uh, as we call it, uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, so I was out splitting wood one night somewhere in the mid-90s because I heat with wood. I still do. And uh, I just looked up and I said, Lord, I'll go anywhere you want me to go, but please don't take me to a city. <laughs> I mean, that was my heart, you know, take me to a jungle, I, but just don't take me to a city. And, and, uh, but we began to ask missionaries as they would come through, uh, how do you become a missionary? And, and I just have a, a, actually a two-year business degree. And, and so the first thing the missionary would do, and I, you know, they'd come to the conference, and I'd say, how do you become a missionary? They said, well, what's your degree? I said, well, I get a two-year business degree. And he said, well, you need to go back, get your bachelor's degree, you need to go to seminary, and then you can become a missionary. It's like... It just doesn't, you know, another baby comes along, and I'm thinking, how would I do that, you know? And then uh, I, I asked the next missionary, he said, how do you become a missionary? And he said, well, what's your degree? To your business. He said, well, you need to go back and get your bachelor's degree. You need to go to seminary, and then become a missionary. I said, that just doesn't seem like what God's telling me. And so that went on for several years. Another baby comes along, and, and in 1990, we had four children, and a missionary came to our mission conference, and as usual, I'd try to get him aside and say, how do you become a missionary? I mean, I, I really seriously wanted to find out, and it just didn't seem like the ones would tell me. So, so I sat down to lunch with a guy by the name of Max Edwards. Max was a missionary with OMS. And I said, how do you become a missionary? He said, what do you do? I said, that's a, that's a different question. I said, well, I'm an auditor. I'm an auditor for Mellon Bank. And he said, well, then you know accounting. And I said, I sure do. He said, I could use you right now in the field as a treasurer. I said, what? Do I, ha I don't have to go back to get my bachelor's degree and go to seminary? He said, why would you want to do that? I said, I didn't want to do that. I didn't think that's what I was supposed to be doing, but that's the only avenue anybody was giving me was that I had to go and go to seminary to be a missionary. And, you know, and I began to open up an understanding for myself that there's missionary needs of all kinds. And so we went on a mission trip with the Max to Mexico. OMS was just starting a new field at that time. And, uh, and uh, we went on that trip, and the last night of that trip, we felt the Lord saying, hey, this is the time. I want you to go home, and I want you to start applying uh, for mission service. And so we went back, and, and we started applying for mission service. And we were accepted in uh, June of 91. I left my job at the bank in August, and uh, the Lord worked out some neat opportunity for me to have some severance pay for a period of time. And, you know, we thought we'd raise our support in six months. I did. My wife didn't. <laughs> well, that was two years and six months. But two years and six months of going to hundreds of churches, camp meetings, Bible studies, and uh, really, uh, as I share what we do now, that began, that really was the ground being laid for what we would do after Mexico, because we end up going on to Mexico to serve, serve for uh, several years, and then the Lord closed that door, and we came back to work uh, in the U.S., uh, challenging churches, challenging individuals, helping missionaries, and so all the groundwork that we laid for those uh, two and a half years, going church after church after church, began the the foundation of what he had for us. So, you know, sometimes we think we're wasting time, and even sometimes I'm challenged by uh, sometimes our own mission organizations say, you know, you got to get your funds in six months. Sometimes that's not God's plan. He maybe has some other plan for you, and he knows when you get, need to get to language school. He knows when you need to get to the field, and uh, sometimes that time is there for us to grow. So we ended up, uh, when we were accepted, we had four kids ages two to nine, uh, people thought we were somewhat out of our minds to take, you know, leave uh, this place and leave this good job and head off to Mexico City with four little kids. 
Uh, but that's what we did. And, uh, and so to fast forward, uh, this is where we're at now. My wife and I still live there in Pennsylvania. We ended up not selling our house. We came back and we moved in there, and that became my regional office for many, many years. Uh, we have five children. Uh, four of them are married. Uh, my youngest son didn't come uh, along until after we got back from Mexico. And our oldest son, Joel, uh, he uh, went on to Bible college, seminary. He pastored for a season of time, but right now, uh, during a season, and I don't know if you have this picture up here, if you can uh, throw a picture up here. I, they just, my, they had their first baby. Uh, he was premature 23 weeks. Uh, he was one pound, six ounces. He went down to below one pound. He's right now uh, two pounds, four ounces. He's in Children's Hospital. They think he might be there for a year uh, if he makes it. And so if you uh, could be praying um, uh, for Caleb, uh, he has the right name. He's been through a lot of battles already. Um, but Caleb Bell, um, and they just took him off of the breathing machine Friday. They said he would never breathe on his own. Well, you know what? God has some other plan. Uh, lots of people praying for him, uh, but uh, that was a neat little picture. He reaches up and grabs uh, my daughter-in-law's finger. So uh, Joel uh, and uh, Caleb Miranda are spending a lot of time in Pittsburgh. Uh, my oldest daughter, Elizabeth, uh, they have five children, uh, four boys and a girl. They're dairy farmers in our area and uh, love the Lord and serving him. My daughter, Rachel, and her husband, Nick, live south of uh, Cincinnati in Kentucky. He's a Wesleyan pastor of a small Wesleyan church uh, in Falmouth, Kentucky. And uh, they have three boys, a girl, and a baby on the way, and uh, seeking God's direction for their future. My middle son, Aaron, uh, he works at an electronics firm, and uh, they have five daughters, and the oldest is seven. Uh, so uh, they're a growing family. We're trying to get some rooms fixed up in this house to keep uh, them places for him. And our youngest son, Seth, is 21. He just finished his sophomore year at Kentucky Mountain Bible College, and uh, we'll be taking him back in a couple weeks uh, back to Bible College. So we have 15 grandchildren, one on the way. And I was out at uh, our OMS headquarters in uh, near Indianapolis a few weeks ago, and I said, you know, we're doing our part in church multiplication. <laughs> and so uh, if you want to figure out how to grow a church, have lots of kids. Um, uh, if you, you know, we're going to have some tables out later if you want to pick up one of our newsletters or prayer cards, we'd appreciate it. And uh, if you want to get on our mailing list, uh, we'd love you too. We, we, I've served in a number of positions with OMS. Uh, in Mexico is the field treasurer and office manager. And, uh, and then when we came back, I kind of took an associate position in the region, uh, working with part of the Northeast region, which were 13 states. Uh, and then in 2005, I became the regional director for OMS in the Northeast. And then about five years ago, they asked if I would take over responsibility for uh, director of all the regional ministries. Uh, and uh, I wish we had a few more staff than we do. Uh, it's hard to keep uh, people in the U.S. funded. It's hard to recruit them. Uh, for a position, and it's hard to get them funded. Uh, so my staff is a little bit smaller right now than I'd like, but we have in a number of states uh, missionaries that are helping uh, try to get uh, missionaries recruited, try to get missionaries to the field that come on board with OMS, uh, challenge camp meetings, challenge churches uh, in their vision for missions. Uh, a lot of churches are still excited for missions, and a lot of churches have lost uh, their sight of missions. And uh, so um, that's kind of our goal. My wife, Nancy, homeschooled all the kids, and so she really had 30 years of homeschooling in. By the time the, the oldest groups were just about done, my youngest one came along, and, and she was doing that. So for about 30 years, she homeschooled. I said she you know, taught for 30 years and got no pension plan, uh, except for grandkids and kids. So uh, that was her uh, discipleship ministry for 30 uh, years pouring uh, into their lives. Um, but the last couple of years, she's kind of worked as my administrative assistant, helping me out uh, in just various things and in, in, in the office and, and doing that. So that's been a great opportunity. 
So I, I just would ask that you'd, uh, you know, pray that God continues to uh, help us in our ministry uh, as we lead people to try to help churches get reengaged with missions. Um, and uh, as I talked, I think every missionary just about here this week already, uh, there's, all of us have support needs. Uh, so if any of you are interested in joining us on our partnership and our teams, that, that would be great too. A little bit about OMS, uh, if you're not familiar, it started out as the Oriental Missionary Society in 1901. Uh, it began in Japan in 1901, then we went into Korea in 1907, we went into China in 1925. So all of our early fields were all in the Orient, and so it made sense. But as the, the ministry began to grow, uh, the Oriental Missionary Society name didn't make sense. And so for many years it just went as OMS International. Uh, and then I think 2009, we, we kept the OMS, but just uh, it's called One Mission Society. And uh, I know a few uh, other mission groups at times said, what do you think, you're the only one mission society, you know, the only one mission society, or, or you're, the, you're the number one? And I, I just say it this way, one mission society, okay? We have one mission, reach a lost world. So if you see OMS or One Mission Society, don't think we're trying to be the only one. We have one mission, that's to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Uh, just gonna, just a few uh, things, big things happening in OMS. Uh, one of the things that's, uh, we're, we're kind of expanding uh, internationalization of OMS. We just made a new umbrella organization called OMS Global. And really the idea is that, is that we need to be able to open up to more people, uh, countries around the world that want to send missionaries out underneath OMS. Uh, in the past, we've had basically six sending countries, uh, U.S., Canada, Great Britain, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. So that's been kind of our sending countries where we produced missionaries out of. But there's many countries now of uh, 77 countries in. They said, hey, we want to go out. We don't want to create a, a new whole organization. Can't we just send them out underneath OMS? And, uh, you know, one example is my uh, regional director, my regional person in California is a Colombian. And so that's, that's the kind of thing that's happening in missions is that you're going to have missionaries from anywhere to anywhere. And so there's people saying, hey, we might be in Vietnam. We want to go plant a church in the United States. Well, we want to be able to accommodate that. And so that's why we've done uh, some of that. And, and so this internationalization is kind of coming about because uh, of the great shift in Christianity across the world. Uh, there's a great shift in Christianity. I'm going to show you real quick. This is statistics. Uh, I know my, my wife's a math major. She said, you can do anything with statistics you want to. Uh, but uh, anyway, this is uh, out of, uh, uh, and I've, I've seen these in many other places, but this was out, off of a website called the Joshua Project. In 1800, 99% of all the Christians lived in Europe and North America and 1% in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. That was 1800. In 1900, or 100 years later, 90% of all the Christians in the world were in Europe and North America, and 10% in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. In 1979, so 79 years after that, 50% of the world Christians were Europe and North America, and 50% Latin America, Africa, and Asia. In 2017, 23% of the world's Christians are in Europe and North America, and 77% in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. So you're seeing a, see that tremendous shift, okay? So you have uh, what once was the sending, so all of our sending countries at one time were in that 99% that were uh, there, but now we're at 23%, or maybe it's even 20 today. There's so many people in some of those parts of the world that they say, you know what? We want to fulfill the Great Commission, and we want to send missionaries out, and, and we need to be ready to be able to do that. And so, and so that's one of the big changes OMS has been going through is wanting to be ready to uh, accommodate to have more missionaries going out. And then we have another uh, kind of a vision of OMS. Is, uh, it, it was uh, called the Billion Dot Global. If you look it up on a, a computer, Billion Dot Global. And it's uh, OMS goal that uh, along with partners, we can give one billion people the opportunity to hear the gospel in 10 years, and that would be by 2026. So uh, we're partnering with uh, other organizations to try to reach a billion people for Jesus Christ. That's about one-seventh 
of the world's population. So um, those are just uh, some of the big things. We, we also offer many ministry opportunities, um, mission trips uh, through Men for Missions, Dynamic Women, which is a ladies group uh, that uh, send out women teams all over the world. Uh, and, and I've talked to some of the ladies that have come back from those teams and they're just, uh, it's just great, some great trips. And so we send about seven, 800 people, maybe 1,000 people out a year on mission trips. Uh, we also have uh, many other smaller projects, uh, water wells and, and Bibles and uh, child sponsorship, uh, bicycles, and, and very other things you can look at, many opportunities to serve. I want to just show, a, a, I think the Lord had this in mind because the, if you were at the service earlier, you saw something on this. I didn't know because some of my, uh, what I want to share the remainder of the time uh, has to do with this, but there's a five-minute video I want to share uh, on a ministry, it's called Hope 61. It's our human trafficking prevention ministry of OMS, and it's based on Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and open the prison doors to those who are bound. So if you want to just watch this about five minutes. Human trafficking is a huge problem around the world today. Most estimates say that about 30 million people are living in slavery at any given time. They're generally categorized into four areas of victimization. The first one would be sex trafficking, where those victims were forced to engage in sexual activities. The second category would be labor trafficking, where those victims would be forced to do all kinds of different work that is not sexual in nature. Thirdly, there are children all over the world, but most prominently on the African continent, who are being forced into soldiering to fight in ethnic warfare or tribal uh, disputes. The fourth area that victims are found in human trafficking is through organ trafficking, where they're being tricked or defrauded into giving up uh, bodily organs uh, without payment or, or any kind of compensation. There are three types of responses to the issue of human trafficking in the world today. The first is rescue and restoration, actually going in and getting the slaves, the, the victims of human trafficking rescued. The second category is legislative advocacy, where, where groups are working fervently with governments and law enforcement, making sure that perpetrators are held accountable and their jail sentences and punishments are appropriate for the crime. The third area of response is that of prevention, preventing it from happening in the first place. And that's the area that Hope 61 works specifically in. Hi, my name is Tom Overton, and I'm the director of Hope 61. Hope 61 was created about five years ago as a ministry of One Mission Society. One Mission Society has been planting churches and developing leaders in, in international context for over a hundred years. And as a result of that, we have tens of thousands of churches that are connected and partnered with OMS in 77 different countries around the world. Hope 61 takes advantage of those partnerships and believes that the church is specifically and uniquely equipped to deal with the issue of human trafficking from the standpoint of prevention. Our training consists of five different parts. It is, it is based first in education and awareness. We have to bring education and awareness to these pastors and churches around the world that this problem is happening right in their community. The second part of our training, we go through again why the church should be involved. Too often, the church has, has relied on law enforcement or their governments to address problems like human trafficking. And we think that the church has an opportunity and a responsibility to get involved. And so we, we work with scripture passages to, to show us the, the heart of God in this issue and why the church can and should be involved. The third part of our training is walking with each church and each pastor to identify what's causing vulnerability. After we establish what's causing vulnerability, then we look at what assets, resources, gifts, and talents the church already has that could be used to reduce the vulnerability in their community. And the last part of our training is an action plan. Every pastor, every church that leads our training around the world goes with an action plan, a set of three or four or five steps that they can implement when they get back to their, to their congregations. At the end of the day, we want our churches to be building bridges to vulnerable people, vulnerable people that, that need help, but they also 
need to hear about Jesus and they also need to be discipled. Now you may be asking yourself, what can you do? How can you partner with Hope 61? The first is to give uh, of your financial resources. We go all over the world and have plans to train more than a thousand churches in, in the next year. We need your assistance to be able to do that. Secondly, we need you to get involved. We need international trainers. We need people to come and take our, our equipping training to be certified as Hope 61 trainers. So then you could go uh, either to the ends of the earth to do these trainings, or maybe you're called to do a training or two in your own community, in your own uh, place of residence. Um, with your help, and certainly with the help of God, we believe firmly that human trafficking can be prevented, that human trafficking can become just a footnote in our world, in our history, that we can end this problem because God is bigger than any problem that we have. And when we ask God to help us and we, and we walk alongside God's power, we feel like we can impact change in each and every community to transform this world into a, a place more like God intended for us to live. So the, this afternoon at the Mission Fair, I have some brochures on that, and I, I've talked to Tom, uh, this guy here, and he says, hey, we would love to have some trainers uh, that could go out and do that, not only here in the States, but they're looking for people that could go uh, maybe once or twice a year uh, internationally and train uh, pastors, train churches uh, in prevention. How do we prevent this from happening? So I, I want to just transition the rest of the time as I, as I had uh, looked at this uh, um, and, 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 and want to talk a little bit about setting captives uh, free. You know, this verse in Isaiah 61 was the same verse that Jesus got up when he introduced himself basically to the world in ministry. And uh, he said, uh, today this is fulfilled in your presence. But he gets up and he says basically this in Luke 4. And he says, he was anointed to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and open prison doors to those who are bound. And, you know, that's uh, what Jesus did when he was here. And that is really the, the job that he's left for us. That's what, that's what he's given for us to do. That's our mission. And I'm going to read them again. To bring good news to the poor. And that's not just the physically poor, but the poor in spirit. Those people that are there. To bind up the brokenhearted, bring liberty to the captives, and open prison doors to those who are bound. And really, that's what the good news of Jesus is about. That's what our job is. That is the mission. Last summer, we had our OMS conference uh, in Greenwood, Indiana, just south of Indianapolis, and we had, uh, actually it was two sessions on this human trafficking. It just seems like that's kind of a, something that's now just out there all the time, and I really didn't know even that much about it myself, actually. But Pam Tebow, that's uh, the mother of uh, Tim Tebow, who was a, the NFL football player. He, he plays some baseball now. Uh, but Pam was there and shared several times on this area of human trafficking. Uh, her and her husband uh, and family were uh, missionaries in the Philippines, uh, did a lot of rescue, and they still do. It was just kind of heartbreaking hearing them talk about some of the young ladies, especially that they were rescuing, uh, that were caught in the, the sex trafficking. But during the session, they said about 40 million, the, the video, 30 million. We're not going to argue over, a, you know, a few million. But a lot of people, a lot of millions are being trafficked every year and every day. They're in slavery and they're bondage. It's shocking. You know, as I thought about this era of set them captives free, it, it also, and, and again, the lady, uh, one of the missionaries talked about Thailand, but it, it made me think of these uh, the soccer team that was trapped back in the cave last summer. Did you, did you watch any of that? Did, did anybody see that? I mean, there was 12 soccer players and their coach uh, that had went into this cave and they're way, way back, miles and miles in the cave and the water comes in and they're trapped. There's absolutely no way for them to get out. And, and, and what happened is the world uh, came to rescue them. People from all over the world, people with all kinds of gifts and, and skills and specialties and scuba and equipment, and they went back in this cave and brought these boys out and rescued them. They were risking their lives to save these 12 boys from sure death. In fact, it just was a one-year anniversary, and, 
and some of the guys that had been on that rescue team went back into the, the cavity where they were, and there was, you know, writing on the wall that basically, you know, we're all dead here because we got trapped and so forth. You know, they thought they were gone. You know, but it also made me think of uh, those all around the world who are on a different type of slavery and captivity, slavery to Satan. They're in the same type of situation that those boys were back in a cave. They have no way out of this bondage, this prison, by themselves. They're in spiritual prisons, spiritual darkness. 2 Timothy 2.26 says this. We really uh, read about their situation, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil that has taken them captive to do his will. Isaiah 42.7 says about the coming Messiah that he will bring light to the Gentiles and open the eyes that are blind and to free captives from prisons. They are in prison. You know, sometimes I think that we forget that we're in this spiritual battle, this spiritual warfare, and there's prisoners of war all around us. Do you understand that's what the people are outside of Christ? I mean, I, I don't say this POW uh, to diminish anybody that maybe did spend time in a prison camp, but I'll tell you what, they're in spiritual prison and they're spiritual prisoners of war because we're in a battle. I want to read a little bit about this uh, battle that we're in. Uh, if you want to turn with me, Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to read just a few verses out of this. Ephesians 6, starting with verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So this is the battle we're in. The Bible talks about it. It talks about it being in prison and captivity, and we're in, in warfare. We're in a battle. And so I think the problem we have today, when we look around and we see situations that are happening, and we see people maybe living lifestyles that they shouldn't be living, that are ungodly. But, you know, we start thinking about the flesh and blood, but what we need to realize is the spiritual aspect of this. They're in bondage. They're, in, they're prisoners. They're in captivity. You know, it goes on to say there uh, in verse 13, Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand our ground, and after that done everything to stand. Stand firm then with a the belt of truth buckled around your waist. You know, I love this uh, when we talk about the armor because the very first thing is we've got to have the truth. The, the belt of truth, uh, it, it held on uh, together some of the armor. And that's what we're... That's where we're falling today. You know, the world's saying there is no such thing as truth. And uh, don't ask my, my wife about that. She's a math major. She says, you know there's truth. The formulas always work. Two plus two is always four. Even before my wife was a Christian, she knew there was something that was real and eternal because of mathematics. <laughs> there's infinity. The formulas always work. You know, but today we're saying there is no such thing as truth, you know, so it's, it's neat when we start out with the armor, the first thing we say is, hey, you know what, we've got to have truth. And then it says, uh, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, not our righteousness, the imputed righteousness that we get from Jesus Christ when we accept him, so we need to have the righteousness. If we're going to fight this battle, we need the truth, we need the righteousness, in addition, take up the shield of faith, which extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. You know, we, we've got to be ready for this battle because it's there, and there's people all around us that are in bondage and prison and captivity, and we need to help them get out. And we need the spiritual armor. We need to realize this is spiritual warfare. I always used to say, and I mean, years ago when I was first teaching on maybe Ephesians, I'd say, you know what, the, our, our, um, our sword of the Spirit is our, our, fence, our offensive weapon. But you know, in those last three verses there, prayer is mentioned five times. Five times. I think that's pretty significant that in three verses, he says, pray, pray, pray. You know, that's one of our key offensive weapons. Second Corinthians talks about that. We don't 
do battle as the world does battle. We have a spiritual warfare that we do through prayer. So we, here are just a few verses as I, John 8, 34 says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So we're in, people are in slavery. We see that on the trafficking issue, but we're in this in the spiritual slavery. Acts 8, 23 says that we're captive to sin. Romans 7, 23 says we're prisoners to the law of sin. We're prisoners. And 2 Peter says that for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. So when we look at people today out there, and I, I really think this is what missions is about. For me, this is missions. We have to realize that people are in bondage and slavery in prison, and they need rescued. We've got to be out there trying to rescue. We hear this in places overseas, but you know, they're all around us. People who need rescued. They can't get out on their own. They're just like those people back in the, in the cave. And we've got to rescue them. John 8, 31 and 32 says this. If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and truth will set you free. So, you know, this is our challenge for each of us. We each have our web of influence. People I, that we touch base with. Sometimes I'll touch base with somebody else that you might and, they, and we, we're both influences, but there's a lot of people that you're going to touch that I'm never going to touch that each one is not going to touch. But we need to be about the business of reaching them for Jesus. I usually don't read something. I want to finish with this in a couple comments. I just came across this Recently, and, and, and I know maybe this isn't the message, mission message that you, you thought you were going to get. But this is a challenge for us. That it's time we, we've got to get out of our comfort zone and, and go start rescuing people. I kind of have a, at times I've preached kind of almost a second message to this. And it's, you know what? I see all through the scripture people being saved. And most of them weren't at camp meeting and most of them weren't in a church. They were out in the daily life, right where we walk, right where you go to work, where you go to school. I want to read this. This is actually from the World Gospel Mission magazine, so it's kind of odd that I'm an OMS and I'm reading out of the World Gospel Mission magazine, but I, I really thought this said what I wanted to uh, finish with here. Uh, this was by the, actually the, their president of, of WGM uh, some months ago. He says, we find ourselves in the midst of a grand scheme, an elaborate web of lies that leaves us struggling to find the truth. The originator of the deception, the father of lies, has one purpose, to devour us as roaring lion would his prey. Satan wants us to believe we are a defeated church, void of power, and no longer able to transform the world. In a Blitzkrieg style, his deception, the alternate reality he is creating, is delivered via barrage of cultural lies that are defacing our long-held values and eroding the very bedrock in which we have stood as a nation for two centuries. But none of what Satan proclaims as reality is true. The real truth is found in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you see it, the truth that sets us free? This is not the depiction of a defeated church. It's the revelation of a triumphant church, a church experiencing victory over Satan in his kingdom of darkness. It reveals a church bringing restoration and wholeness to lives of individuals who have been imprisoned by the gates of hell. Don't get confused here as who is on the defensive. Think about it. Gates are not an offensive weapon. The script reveals that Satan in last-ditch effort has erected gates around those he has imprisoned in darkness to keep them from being exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. 
But the, effect is, the ineffectiveness of these gates are here declared. They shall not prevail. They cannot withstand the advance of the church. And this is a key verse here. When the church marches on the gates of hell, it will overpower them, setting free those who are been enslaved. So why does it appear that the church is in retreat? It's simple. The church, the people of God, has stopped being the church. They have stopped advancing on hell because Satan's menacing roar has convinced them that they are on the losing side. This is Satan's only possible winning strategy. Defeated by the cross, he can only win if the church doesn't engage him in battle. Too many Christians have believed his lies and are sitting on their hands. They see the gates of hell from where they sit, watching prisoners being dragged into a hellish prison. However, they do nothing, not because they don't care, but because they are convinced there's nothing they can do. But Matthew 16, 18 is a call to action. It's a time to ignore the lies. If you don't want to send, settle for lies of Satan, if you don't want to settle for the life that is less than God's best, then rise up and join us and become gate crashers. You know what? We have to start crashing the gates of hell. They're prisoners of war. I was thinking about a movie this morning. Uh, maybe... Never even seen it, Captain America. Maybe you've seen it. His friend and some others were in prison. They basically had said, you know what, there's no way we can go get them. They're lost. They're gone. They're, they're being tortured. And he decides to take it on himself that he's going to go rescue these guys. And after he does, then he puts together a whole team of people that began to get this battle underway you know and that's what we need in missions today we need people of all kinds of skills all kinds of gifts and as I thought maybe years back you know oh it's just a, somebody that's a, a trained seminarian no folks it's where you're at it's what you're doing maybe he's been training you for years and now he's just saying hey it's time to go rescue people <laughs> And it might be on a foreign field or it might be right here, but he's saying, hey, it's time to use what you've already know, what you're already doing, what God's already challenged you and equipped you in. It's time to get about the business of rescuing people. And so that's my challenge to you this morning. Is, uh, uh, this is Mission Day. It's not just about hearing missionaries. That's not what it's about. It's about hearing if God is calling you to some deeper involvement in missions. And I don't know what that is. But I hope you're listening. Because there's people trapped back in caves today that need to have some specialty people going and helping them get out. And, and maybe you're that person. Thank you. I hope to talk with some of you around the tables at the mission fair. Thank you. I, I want to do that, don't you? Be involved and be a gate crasher. Before we uh, have our closing song, I want to give you an opportunity to respond one way, only one, but one way among many that we can respond is to support Camp Psyker missions. Uh, you see on the board the uh, amount that the board and the mission secretary have set as a goal, and I'm sure it's a very minimal kind of goal in the light of the great need in all the world. I'd like to invite you to pick up an envelope, uh, should be one on the pew rack or somewhere near you that you can find. It's an envelope for Camp Psyker giving. And of course you can give to the operating budget, but today you'll want to check the missions box and give for missions. We will receive an offering at this time but it may be that you would want to make a pledge or a faith promise to be sent in perhaps every month, for example, through the year ahead.
I well remember the first time that I ever did that. The year was 1945, 74 years ago. I was 12 years of age, and I heard this kind of a message for the very first time that I recall in my life. Reverend Fred Schultz was the missionary secretary, later became president of Camp Syker. And I made my first missionary pledge. $25 for a 12-year-old in 1945 was a fairly big challenge. And I well remember the encouragement that Reverend Schultz gave me when I came back to Camp Syker a year later and handed him $25. I'm not saying that to uh, say, look at me how I did it. I'm saying it rather because I realized at that time that I was really on the winning side of the spiritual warfare. What a great thing to be part of something so great as the mission that was first conceived in the heart of the God of love, so loving the world that whosoever will might come. The God of love who sent his son on mission to this world that they loved. The God of love who with the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit and the God of love, the Holy Spirit, who sends us now. I invite you to consider an offering and or a pledge or faith promise. The ushers are going to come and wait upon us now and we'll receive this morning offering. And as they come, let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for once again showing us our privilege as well as our responsibility to be involved in the great world mission from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We pray that you will bless our efforts and multiply them as you multiplied loaves and fishes to feed multitudes and to set people free. In Jesus' name, amen.
Will you please stand with me as we close this service with a song, I Will Serve Thee. It's on 98 in your songbooks. As you know, you are either a missionary or a mission field. I think I'm looking at a host of missionaries right here. Would you dismiss a missionary from this service by shaking that person's hand and say, go to all the world. <laughs> 